Well, this morning we get to complete our story. So this is week three of three weeks walking you through the entire Bible as one story in nine words. And so if you've been with us from the beginning, we started with some really good news. We looked at creation, but then it went badly. And so we called our first week the botched beginning because God began something good, but then we blew it. So you may remember where we started our story with God's loving creation of this wonderful universe as a gift for humanity, as his image bears. It was a gift of love. It was very good. But then we botched things. We revolted and chose sin and sin brought death in all of its forms. But God, he didn't give up on us. And so he promised restoration. That was our third chapter. He promised that he would fix what we had broken and he would do it through the family of a man named Abraham. And, and that's where we started learning about these covenants on your, on your graph there, these, these covenants that drive our story forward. Then last week, we entered the messy middle of the Bible, which makes up the bulk of it just by page count, the the bulk of the Old Testament, the messy middle. It begins with the gift of the law, a good thing, the law covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It told Israel exactly what they needed to do to be able to cash in on and enjoy these Abrahamic covenant promises in their lifetime. The law gave them all the commands that they needed, but... It did not give them the desire to obey. And humans, we do what we desire to do. And so Israel did not obey most of the time. That's why the messy middle is so messy. But in the middle of this messy middle, God chose a king. That's chapter number five. He chose a man named David. And he made an amazing covenant promise with David that David's descendants would always have the throne of Israel. David's descendants would always be king. However, for any particular generation of David's descendants to enjoy that covenant and rule over Israel in strength, they had to obey the law. It all went back to the law and and they failed time after time. And so the kings after David, they blew it and Israel fell into exile. They were removed from God's land. It was the darkest period of their history. And yet in the midst of that great darkness, God promised hope in the form of a new covenant that would replace the old covenant and would be better in every way. This new covenant would provide the forgiveness that they needed and it would give them not just the commands, but the desire. It would give them this new heart. It would fill them with God's spirit so they would actually want to do what God wanted them to do so they could enjoy all that was promised. The new covenant, this hope, it was promised in the Old Testament, but it wasn't given yet. Remember, that was the thing that was so different about this covenant in chapter 6. It was promised, but it didn't start. And so as our story begins today, we're still under the old system. We're still under the law. That's where we're going to pick it up this morning. As the New Testament begins, and you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1 the very first page of the New Testament. As the New Testament begins, Israel is still under the law. They do not have the new covenant yet. And so, according to the law, to be blessed by God in this life as a nation, they had to obey the law. Just as we saw last week on the last page of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, if you want to be blessed... You got to obey the law. And so it's helpful to clarify. We tend to have a little bit of a misunderstanding about how the Bible works. You turn to Matthew chapter 1 and what do we call that? The New Testament. And so we assume this is where our story begins. This is now about us. This is the new era of biblical history. No, it's not. When Matthew 1 begins, they're still under the old system. It's still the law. How long does that last? All the way through the Gospels to the very end when Jesus dies. And so, in reality, all of the Gospels until the very end is actually Old Testament, not New Testament. It's still the old system, not the new system. They don't yet have the new covenant. They're still under the law. If you keep that in mind, that for all of Jesus' life until he dies on the cross, they're still under the Old Testament system. It'll make the story of Jesus much easier to understand. 
Okay, so the story of Jesus begins what is third and final part of our story, what we call the surprising solution. The surprising solution. It's surprising because no one in the Old Testament could have imagined what God had in store in our story today. This is just incredible what God is going to do. It's not going to fit their expectations at all. Remember, if you go all the way back to the beginning, we lost the garden when sin entered the picture. In the story today, God is going to get us back to the garden. That's what he promised to do. But the way God gets humanity back to the garden isn't what anyone expected. It was a complete shock. To everyone who witnessed it. That incredible surprising solution. It's all about one man. And that's where our story goes next. The center of the whole story. Everything has been leading up to this. Everything after it will point back to, uh, to this. This is the climax of the story. It's time to talk about Jesus. So this is the best part. We get to talk about what everything has been building up to. So let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 1. Okay, beginning of the New Testament, but still more like the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and on and on. And you read that and wonder, why would Matthew start his book in such a boring way? He starts with a whole chapter of genealogy. Why? Well, Because genealogy was necessary. Genetics mattered. Remember the promise. The one who would deliver us from Satan and sin was not just any son of Eve. Also, he had to be a son of Abraham and a son of David. And so that's where Matthew begins his whole book. Because what Matthew is telling you about Jesus from the very beginning is he's genetically qualified to be king. He's qualified to be this amazing promised king by his genetics. Had to be family of David, family of Abraham, no other way. Okay, so he's genetically qualified, but here's the deal. There were lots of men in Israel who were genetically qualified to be king. There were lots who could trace their lineage back to David and Abraham. So how do we know that this particular man is the king from his baptism? That little account where Jesus is baptized, it's incredibly important to the story. Look at Matthew chapter 3. So turn to the right, just about a page. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We so often we miss the point of what's going on here. When heavens are open and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, what is that? That is God anointing Jesus as his king. Typically in the Old Testament, a a king was anointed with olive oil, but Jesus is better. Jesus is special. And so God anoints him with the Holy Spirit. And then God says, this is my beloved son. And we tend to think Trinity, second member of the Trinity. No, no, no. That's not what that phrase meant at this point in biblical history. At this point, it means what it meant in the Old Testament, which was simply the Davidic king. When God says, this is my son, he means this is my king. And so Jesus is appointed the king of Israel by baptism. This is the moment. He's no longer a carpenter's son. He is now the appointed king of Israel. However, there had been a lot of appointed kings of Israel. Like David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah. Lots of kings who were descendants of David who God appointed to be king of Israel. None of them fixed our sin problem. Why? Because all of them had their own sin. All of them had their own sin to deal with. So none of them could crush Satan and deliver us from sin and death once and for all. How do we know this king is going to be any different? It's because of where the story goes next. And this is incredibly important. This next part of the story is phenomenally important to the story of the Bible. One of the most important chapters in your entire Bible. Chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you, you know how this story plays out. Satan tempts Jesus. So what has God done? God has recreated that garden moment, right? There's a human being, Jesus, one, standing on his own. And here comes Satan, the tempter. But this time it goes differently. 
Whereas Adam fell into sin, Jesus does not. And it's interesting, if we had time, we'd unpack more of this. Every time Satan tempts Jesus, and again, what is the core of the temptation going to be? It's the core of all sin. Pride. That's where Satan's going to come after Jesus. And what is Jesus going to do? He is going to quote the book of Deuteronomy, which is what? It's the law. Jesus is going to go back to the law three times and perfectly obey. So what is he showing to the universe? That he is the perfect law keeper. He is the one and only human being to ever fulfill the law. So he is the new and better Adam. And that is what proves that he can be this king who will finally deliver us from the curse of sin. Jesus finally does what no human being before or after has ever done. He obeys. He perfectly obeys. So he does not have to deliver himself from sin. He can finally be this son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, who can crush our enemy and deliver us from sin. So now, at the end of the temptation account, Jesus is ready to go out into the nation and act like a king because he's qualified, appointed, and proven to be God's chosen king. So he begins to speak like a king. If you look at verse 17, here's the kind of the core of his message. He's speaking as a king in verse 17, chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven doesn't mean going up to heaven. It means heaven coming down. The kingdom from heaven on earth is here now, meaning I'm it. I'm your king. And so you need to repent. Now, what does repent mean? And it's basic meaning. Anytime you see repent means turn from something bad to something good to avoid God's punishment. In this particular context, what's the bad thing you need to turn from and the good thing you need to turn to? But what are they still under? The law. So in the gospels, the word repent, it means obey the Mosaic law. Jesus is saying God's kingdom on earth is coming. I'm the king, so you need to get ready by obeying the law, exactly as the Old Testament promised you. We're back to the Mosaic Covenant. If you're going to be blessed from the Davidic king, you must obey the Mosaic law. Now, it's important to clarify this because I've heard this verse used often in our presentation of the gospel. So people will say, well, to be saved, you have to repent and believe. You have to repent from all your sins and trust in Jesus. No. No, that's not correct. This verse is not our gospel. This verse about repenting, it's not about how you go to heaven. Because the law was never about how you go to heaven. How are people saved? From Adam's day until the last human being. Salvation is always by faith alone. Never by the law. So when Jesus says repent, meaning obey the Mosaic law, he's not telling them how to go to heaven. That's by faith alone. What is he telling them? If you, as a nation of Israelites, want to enjoy the covenant blessings that I, as your king, are about to unleash on earth, what do you need to do? The same thing I've been telling you for 1,400 years. Obey the law. That's not about how to go to heaven. That's not our good news. That's not our gospel. That was their message. It was an Old Testament message about how the nation of Israel could be blessed in this life through the Mosaic law. You got to obey. So Jesus is getting them ready to obey so that they could receive all the blessings. But here is the problem that Jesus had. Jesus' audience assumed they were already doing great with the law. And in particular, we're talking about a subset of Jesus' audience, the leaders of the day. We're talking about the Pharisees. And if you want to know, what did the Pharisees think about life? Well, they thought that life was a checklist. And so the Pharisees took the entire Mosaic law and they boiled it down literally to a checklist of about 615 commands. They were all rich enough to be able to spend all their time all day keeping the list. So the Pharisees are the classical legalists, righteousness by list. They thought that they kept the list well enough to already be okay with the law. They were already good in God's sight. They didn't need a savior. They didn't need Jesus to help them out. They were already good. And so Jesus takes this moment to teach his most famous sermon ever. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're talking, of course, about the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount is misunderstood by a ton of people. They don't understand what it meant in its original day, in its original context. It was not written to us. It was written to the Israelites, particularly to the Pharisees. And here's the key. If you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 5 through 7, you have to come to understand that it is all bad news that was designed to get them desperate. There is no gospel, which means literally good news, in the Sermon on the Mount. It is all bad news designed to get self-righteous people lost. Designed to get them desperate for Jesus' help. And so you, you hopefully have read this. You're hopefully somewhat familiar with this. Jesus is going to do these crazy radical things. Like he is going to equate hatred with murder. He's going to equate lust with adultery. Well, for Pharisees, they knew murder, adultery, you're, you're doomed. But Jesus says, if you even hate, if you even lust, and we've all done those things. And so Jesus is getting them all lost. And, and his teaching, it culminates at the end of chapter 5. Look at verse 48. This verse, we read it and we don't realize how terrifying it is. Okay, so Pharisees, you think you have earned your way into God's blessings. You think you have earned Mosaic blessings from God? Okay, verse 48. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want to pass the test of the law, okay perfection as perfect as God is Jesus culminates all of that teaching he brings it all together in a famous teaching at the end if you look at chapter 7 it's famous little story that again it's often misunderstood chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 Jesus says enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it okay so we got to interpret this in context in the context of the sermon on the mount how narrow is the narrow gate perfection so how many people in the history of the human race made it through the narrow gate one you didn't. I won't. No, no Jewish person listening to this in the first century made it. None of us walk through the narrow gate. Why? Because to walk through the narrow gate, you've got to be as perfect as the Heavenly Father is. There's no good news here. It is all meant to get everyone lost so they would come to Jesus for hope. So hopefully at this point they're getting the picture, but it would be easy to dismiss Jesus. Well, he's just, a, he's just a nutcase. He's crazy. Problem is right after this, Jesus does a lot of big miracles, a lot of huge miracles to show that he is the king who has authority over the law. So now Israel is really in trouble because they have this guy performing these amazing miracles they've never seen before, which show he has God's power and he's telling them you're not getting in unless you're absolutely perfect. So what are they to do with that? Well, Jesus finally gives them the good news. He gives them the solution at the end of chapter 11. So turn to the end of chapter 11. What must Israel do? Look at the end of chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sink. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Who at this point, in this context, should be heavy laden? Everyone who's paying attention. Like, everyone who is there should feel these things. They should feel weary. They should feel, he- they should feel desperate. That's the whole point of everything Jesus has done, is to get them all lost. Okay, so now that they feel lost and weary and heavy laden, what do they need to do? Well, then Jesus says, come take my yoke. That's king language. That's submission language. Think about a donkey or an ox with a yoke upon it. Take my yoke, bow before me. This is king speak. Jesus is speaking as their king. It is time for you to bow before me as your promised Davidic king. I am who you should have been expecting. I'm the one. So, at this moment, Israel faces a big choice, don't they? They can now choose whether to accept Jesus as their king or reject him. It's an important clarification because so often we read the Gospels and we think it's all about accepting Jesus as Savior. Well, he hasn't died yet. Hasn't risen from the dead yet. At this point, it's about accepting him as king. Will they, the nation of Israel, accept their rightful king? Submit before him. 
That's the question. If you've read the Gospels, you know the answer. No. No, they don't. So in Matthew chapter 12, the next chapter, the Pharisees reject Jesus, then he rejects them, and he begins heading to the cross, to the crucifixion. He no longer offers himself as king. He's headed to his death. And you know how this book ends. Jesus dies on the cross, and at that point, it looks like God's plan has failed. It looks like Satan and sin have won, but Satan was as absolutely wrong as he could possibly be. The cross is actually the the proof of of Jesus's victory. It's actually the moment where Jesus defeats Satan once and for all. The cross is his victory. Why? Because go back all the way to the beginning, all the way to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. What was promised? Satan would be destroyed by a descendant of Eve who in the process would also die. This is exactly what God told us would happen. The perfect descendant of Eve lays down his life and in the process crushes the head of Satan. This is the moment of Satan's defeat. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians 2. And having disarmed the demonic powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. And when I say that this is the surprising solution part of the story, this is why. Because what was the cross in the ancient world? It was the epitome of evil. You want to think like, what stuff does Satan like? A cross? That would be it because you crucify people there. You torture them in public for all to see. Jesus took the epitome of evil and used it as a tool to defeat evil once and for all. And so Paul's saying the cross is actually, Jesus completely turned it around. The thing that was the epitome of evil becomes the moment when God wins his greatest victory over Satan and all demonic powers. And so Jesus has defeated the kingdom of darkness, and I wish we could talk about this all day, but we cannot. I have to keep going. And so let's talk for a moment about what things Jesus won for us at the cross. When he defeated Satan and won this incredible victory, what does it bring to us? Well, the first thing is forgiveness of sins. Our God is a a holy and righteous God, which means he can't just sweep our sin under the rug and ignore it. He must punish sin if his universe is going to remain righteous. So Jesus takes our punishment in our place. That's what the cross is about. Justice is upheld in the universe through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus in our place. So Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. By dying on the cross, Jesus makes it possible for a holy God to forgive unholy people like us. So the death of Jesus, that is the legal basis for salvation. Actually, it's the legal basis for salvation always. We've talked about this a little bit before. Remember, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament did not take away anyone's sin. Because goats and cows can't take away human sin. Can't do it. You had to have a human die in humanity's place. So Jesus, when he died on the cross, remember God stands above time. And so God, seeing all time at the same time, is able to legally apply Jesus' death as the basis of salvation from Adam all the way to the last human who will ever live. It is always on the basis of Jesus' death that we are saved. That was true for Abraham. It's true for us today. It's always through the death of Jesus that forgiveness is possible. Okay, so we have forgiveness of sins. Second, we have the new covenant. Luke twenty two twenty. He that is Jesus took the cup after they had eaten. This is the last supper right before he is let out and arrested. Saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Remember the new covenant. It was promised way back here in the hope chapter, but it didn't start yet. Why? Because the Mosaic covenant was still in effect. And Israel can't just wish away the Mosaic covenant. It's a divine covenant. Someone has to come and take it away. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus lives a perfect life. So he earns all the blessings of the Mosaic covenant. And then he dies a sacrificial cursed death. And takes away all the curses of the Mosaic covenant. So he himself in his body fulfills the Mosaic covenant. And that's what allows him to set it aside. And so this is the moment when the eras change. As he hangs on the cross, the Mosaic covenant comes to an end, and the new covenant begins. And you get that through Jesus. 
Okay, so he, he makes the new covenant possible. The Mosaic covenant is now complete. This is when, if you will, the story changes. Not Matthew 1, it's Matthew 27 when he dies on the cross. So you get the new covenant. That's what we celebrate every time we take communion. We're celebrating that Jesus' death brought us the new and better covenant. Third thing Jesus' death accomplished for you, it earned you eternal life. Hebrews two fourteen through 15. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The point of that beautiful passage is that by dying, Jesus actually defeated death. Didn't just defeat Satan and sin. He defeated death. And so death will be temporary for you because Jesus has defeated. You will have eternal life. Now, that's all nice to say. But how do we know that Jesus has actually earned for us all of these wonderful things? Forgiveness and the new covenant and eternal life. How do you know you have those in him? Because he rose. Because he rose. The resurrection is absolutely essential to our story. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this whole story is tragedy because death won. If Jesus didn't overcome death, you certainly aren't going to overcome death. But Jesus rose from the dead and in rising from the dead, he demonstrated that he has power over it. He showed that he has won our victory over sin and Satan and death once and for all. A long time ago, I heard someone say it It was really helpful. The resurrection is like God's receipt. That Jesus' payment has been accepted in full. You are completely paid for. You already have forgiveness and the new covenant and eternal life because Jesus rose. Essential part of the story. He rose from the dead. There's so much more we could say, but we have to move on to the next story. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it makes the next chapter of our story possible. We call that the chapter of the church. This is where you're living today. So finally, welcome to you. We are now in the church age. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So, if you remember from the very, very beginning, the first chapter of this story, what is the big idea of the Bible? God desires to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. That's his goal in all of human history. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's simply the rule of God on earth, God ruling in some way. And there's been lots of different forms of the kingdom of God over time. He ruled in a particular way in the garden. We call that the garden kingdom. He ruled in a particular way during the period of the judges when there was no king in Israel. We call that the theocratic kingdom of God on earth. And then when the Davidic king came, we call that the the, the Davidic kingdom of God on earth. So there's been all these different forms of the kingdom of God on earth, and they all look unique. And the church is just the next one of those. And so it tells us in Colossians 1, for he, that is Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So you are in the church, you are in the kingdom of Jesus. So if we put that together, what we're saying is the church is simply a new form of the kingdom of God on earth. God is glorifying himself today by establishing this new form of the kingdom, the church on earth through us, through humanity. Okay? So this church form of the kingdom, it's very different than the form of the kingdom that came before it. So before the church, the form of God's kingdom on earth was the Davidic kingdom. It was an actual geopolitical nation. It had an army, an economy, it had civil laws, it had government, it had buildings, it had land. It was a nation-type kingdom. The church is fundamentally different than that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And he, that is God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all all in all. So if you want to know what exactly is the church, it's simply the actual body of Christ on earth today. The church is the body of Christ on earth today. It is not a nation. It is not a building like this one. It is not an organization. It is not a club. It is an organic body. 
It's, it's a living thing. It's, it's a family with Jesus as our head, a family that's made up of all ethnicities. So if we had time, we'd walk through the book of Acts and see how the Jews come into the church in chapter 2 of Acts. And then the Samaritans come in in chapter 8. And then the Gentiles come in in chapter 10. And Gentiles, well, that's the whole rest of humanity. And so all human beings of every nationality, every ethnicity, every social class are welcomed into this one family on equal terms. And that's an incredibly radical thing. Finally, here on earth, you have a family that is open to everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, language, class, wealth, any of those things. You are welcome here. You are welcome into this one family of love. And it's, it's good to notice how radical that is. When we look at, at the things that plague our world, the problems of this world, like division and anger and, and violence and racism and hatred, none of those things are fixable with human solutions. Medical advances and science and technology and government and education, all good things. None of them can fix problems like that. Only the church can. That's a beautiful thing about the church. The church is actually the solution to every problem the world currently faces. Because the church is this one family where everyone is welcome on equal terms. So it's a new thing. And that should make it obvious that the church is not Israel. The church is not Israel. That's important to say. In saying that, we are saying something different than you would probably hear in most Presbyterian, Lutheran, or Catholic churches. They usually equate the church and Israel together. They believe that we are one and the same. We disagree. We believe that the church and Israel are distinct. And so that has some very practical ramifications. For example, number one, we don't try to keep the Mosaic law. We we don't because the law was for Israel. Jesus has fulfilled it and set it aside. Instead, we believe we're called to follow Jesus. We follow what he taught. Now, there's a lot of overlap if you read them. A lot of times that Jesus says similar things to the law, but sometimes he sets aside commands of the law, like the Sabbath. You're not under Sabbath law anymore. That's gone. Sometimes he takes an Old Testament law and actually expands it. Like in the Old Testament, it was enough to, you know, not just not murder. Jesus has raised the bar and said, don't even hate. So sometimes he expands things. You're not called to follow the law. You're called to follow Jesus. Second practical implication, we don't baptize babies. You may wonder, why is that? Why do some churches baptize babies? Well, churches that baptize babies do it because they believe the church is Israel. And Israel in the Old Testament, they had a ceremony by which they joined their children to the covenant community. What was that? Circumcision. The New Testament, though, is kind of down on circumcision, so they look for a new ceremony, and it's baptism. And so they baptize their babies to include them in the covenant community so they can act just like Israel. We don't do that because the church isn't Israel. So we simply practice baptism as we find it in the New Testament, which is always baptism of believers. Infant can't believe, so shouldn't be baptized yet. So that's why we practice what we do with baptism. Third practical implication, we should not seek political power. Now, the church blew that one for a long time during the medieval ages in particular and things went really really bad the church is not meant to have political military or economic power because we are not a nation state we are not a geopolitical form of god's kingdom on earth so the church should not try to force a nation or a group to follow our rules that's not our role on earth now we have to clarify As individual believers, each of us should be a good citizen of whatever nation we belong to. So if you're an American citizen, that means you should be an informed voter and you should advocate for good, wise laws. And you can even run for office. That's a good thing. But you do that as an individual believer, not as the church. The church is not a political entity. It was never meant to be. The church is a family that openly welcomes people from all political affiliations, all ethnicities, all national groups on an equal basis. So, the church is not Israel. If that's the case, then when did the church begin? Well, the answer to that one is Acts chapter 2. 
So we're told in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That is the fulfillment of that new covenant promise. That God will give us his spirit. That's what's happening in that moment. God's spirit comes to dwell. That's a new thing. So all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Gospels, believers did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, there were some moments when believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit for a specific task. Think of like Samson. Spirit gave him strength. But the spirit didn't come to live within him permanently, transforming his heart. That's not what the spirit did in the Old Testament. It is what he does now. So in Acts chapter 2, this new covenant promise begins. The Holy Spirit comes to live permanently inside of believers. This is a completely new and wonderful thing. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit coming to live in you that actually makes you a part of this new family we call the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit himself. When he comes to fill you, the moment you trust in Jesus, that's what makes you a member of God's church. It's not about doing a membership class or something like that, taking, a, taking some kind of test or anything like that. It's the Holy Spirit. He makes you a part of God's church. So you obviously couldn't be part of the church and the Holy Spirit came. That's Acts chapter 2. So that's when the church began, Acts chapter 2. Uh, final question for us about the church. How is it that we who... I'm guessing mostly we're Gentiles. We're not children of Abraham. How is it that we get to enjoy all of these blessings that in the Old Testament were promised just to Israel? Key passage is Galatians 3. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. This is an incredibly profound verse. What Paul is saying is that all of those Abrahamic covenant promises were actually only ever meant for one descendant. The one and only descendant of Abraham who would perfectly obey the law and qualify to receive all of them. So all of those promises made in the Old Testament, they were really meant not for the Jews in general, but for the one Jew, the perfect Jew, the super Jew. Who would receive all the blessings. That's Jesus. And so people fight for, for hundreds of years now over this land in the Middle East. Okay, the, the promised land. Does it belong to the Jews or to the Palestinians? The biblical answer is neither. It belongs to one guy, Jesus. And he hasn't come back to claim it yet. It's all his land. He's the only one who has a divine right to all the blessings of the covenants. Okay, so if that's true, how is it that any of us get to share in what only belongs to Jesus? Well, that's the end of Galatians chapter 3. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. I've underlined Paul's favorite prepositional phrase. It is the answer to our question. How is it that you, a Gentile, get to enjoy blessings that were only promised to the Israelites? Because you're in Christ. You are in Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, then God places you into Jesus so that everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. You don't deserve forgiveness, but neither does a Jew. You both get it because you're in Christ, the one and only person who does deserve it. Everything good you experience comes because you are in Christ. You are a descendant of Abraham, not because you actually are, but because you are in the one and only descendant of Abraham to ever qualify to receive all the blessings. That's why you are an heir of the promised blessings, not because you earned it, not because you have the right genetics, but because you are in the ideal Jew. 
He alone received all the blessings and he shares them with us. That's true of Jews and Gentiles alike. So it's important to say Jewish believers today, they don't get anything that Gentile believers don't. They don't have any advantages over Gentile believers. We are all one and the same in Christ. That's the beautiful news that we get to proclaim to people. That in this church, in this one family, in Christ, we receive everything we've always hoped for. Forgiveness and eternal life and the new covenant and all these blessings. And it's available to people for free. You don't have to obey the law. You don't have to work for it. That's our gospel. Remember Jesus, he had a different gospel back when he came as king. We have our own gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have this new good news that eternal life and forgiveness and the new covenant are a free gift that's given to anyone who will simply say, yes, I want that. Yes, I believe Jesus died and rose for me so I could have these for free. The moment you trust in Jesus, all of that becomes true for you. The great news, though, is our story isn't over yet. So as great as forgiveness and new covenant and eternal life are, it gets better in the last chapter, shalom. So turn to Revelation 21. Time for the end of our story. Revelation 21. I wore um, my Johnny Cash shirt today. That's what I call this one. I don't wear it often because the background is black and the shirt is black. But I love this shirt because Johnny Cash is my favorite songwriter and I kind of feel like this is something he would wear. One of the reasons that I love Johnny Cash is he was an extremely apocalyptic songwriter. He loved to use the book of Revelation in the songs that he wrote. So some of his most famous songs, When the Man Comes Around, Ain't No Grave, it's straight from the book of Revelation. It's straight from the stuff that we're reading and looking at now in this final chapter. So look at Revelation 21. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the good news we've been looking forward to. This is when God fixes everything. We call this chapter of our story shalom. That's a Jewish word. Shalom means the peace that comes when God fulfills all of his promises. You don't have shalom now. You do have the fulfillment of some of his promises, but not all. There is not shalom on earth today. There is still all kinds of sin and evil and violence on earth today. Satan is still the ruler of this world, but we know that's not going to last long. We know that shalom will come when Jesus returns. And and that's the first thing that all Christians can agree on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through four things that all Christians can agree on. We'll talk about some of the details we disagree on in a moment, but there's four things we can all agree on. The big ideas of what's coming in this final chapter of shalom. The first is Jesus is coming back. He is going to return. If you turn back a couple pages to the left, chapter 19 of Revelation. Let's read about his return. So chapter 19, look at verse 11. I'll just read a couple verses here. John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Skip down to verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The big idea you get from reading these descriptions of Jesus is when he returns, it's not like the first time. First time, humility, carpenter, poverty. Second time, power, king, glory. So he's going to return as king. That leads us to the second thing that all Christians can agree on. When he comes back, he wins. He wins this moment, this, this final confrontation between Jesus and evil. Look at verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. These are all the bad guys assembled to make war against him, that is Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
pretty horrible scene. But the big idea to see here, it's like the most anticlimactic battle ever. When it talks about a sword from his mouth, it just means his speech. Jesus will say a word and all evil will cease. All evildoers will die in an instant. All of his enemies will cease to live. He will win the battle without, I mean, we're just really there watching. That's all our part. Jesus wins this battle once and for all. And once he wins, he judges. And that leads us to the third thing we can all agree on. Jesus will judge all humanity based on works. Now, if you're paying attention, that might sound like heresy at first, right? Because salvation has always been by faith alone. So how can Jesus judge by works? Well, the key is to recognize that there are actually two judgments in the future, and which one you're at depends on faith. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, our judgment based on works will be the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before Jesus at a day in the future in heaven. We'll already be in heaven and he will evaluate our deeds for rewards. Paul talks about that day of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus will judge not your faith, but your works at the judgment seat of Christ. But it's not heaven or hell on the line. You are already in heaven. That's already settled by faith alone. But now that you're in heaven, the question is, do you receive reward? Do you hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, or do you miss out? That will be determined by your works. Were you faithful to Jesus in this life? That will determine reward and honor in the next life. So for us, our judgment based on works is the judgment seat of Christ once we're already in heaven. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, they don't stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They stand before what the Bible calls the great white throne. You find it at the end of Revelation chapter 20. Look at the end of chapter 20. Look at verse 11. I'll just read a few of these verses. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. You miss out on this judgment because your name is in the book of life. If you've trusted in Jesus, you pass out of this judgment. You're delivered through faith. But for those whose names are not in the book of life, what did they say during their life on earth? They said, we, we don't want the gift that Jesus has provided. We want to stand before God on our own two feet. We want to stand before God based on our works. And so the book of works is opened. And the question is, were your works good enough to earn you heaven? And you know the answer to that. No, no one's but Jesus's are. And so they are condemned. All have sinned and so all fall short and are condemned who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. So in the future, Jesus will judge all of us based on our works at two different judgments. That's the key. It's two, not one. Fourth thing we can all agree on after judgment, Jesus will fix all that is broken. This is where we really started in our reading in Revelation chapter 21. At the end of all things, Jesus will create a new heavens and a new earth where everything that was broken is gone. So sin and pain and death and sickness, all of those things are gone and only perfection is left. So those are the big ideas that we can all agree on. Now what about the details? Man, we don't know a ton about those. They get really confusing. And a lot of really godly churches disagree on the details of how all this works out. I've given you a chart so you know what Grace Bible Church believes. I'll walk you through it in like one minute, give you a quick, but I don't know if this is right. I think it is. Grace Bible Church, we believe, well, God made a lot of promises way back there to Abraham's actual literal genetic descendants called the Israelites. They were going to have all this land from the Nile River to the Euphrates. They've never had that because they've never had it. And because God is always faithful to his word, he's got to give it to them at some point in the future. So as a result, we believe there is a future on earth for the literal nation of Israel. So when Jesus comes back, they're going to get the land they were promised. How's that going to play out? Well, Here's our little chart. We think the next thing in biblical history is probably the rapture, where all the church age believers, both those who are living and those who have died, are, are raised. 
We are drawn up to Jesus in heaven. We're given our resurrection bodies. That's probably when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe, don't know. Back here on earth, we enter the great tribulation for seven years. It's really bad. The Antichrist rises. He brings persecution against the Jews. What's the point of that? To again make the Jewish people desperate so they cry out for a savior. Finally, the nation of Israel is ready to embrace Jesus as their king. The moment they make that decision, he comes back. His second coming is that anticlimactic battle where Jesus wipes out the bad guys and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. That's a thousand year rule of Jesus from Jerusalem ruling over the entire earth. That is when all of those Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel are fulfilled. It's a time of unparalleled prosperity and blessing on earth. That thousand years ends with Satan being released, deceiving the nations. Once again, God the Father shows up. The battle is just as anticlimactic as before. All the enemies are wiped out. God actually disintegrates this universe at that moment and and then recreates this new heaven and this new earth that we get to enjoy forever. I think. That's kind of how we put the pieces together. (laughs) Don't know for positive. It's okay if you disagree on the details. Just remember those four big things that we can all agree on. The big idea, however shalom is going to work out, the big idea is that God is taking us back to here. That's what the story is about. When the story began, where were we? We are in the garden. And what was life like? It was very good. When the story ends, where are we? Actually, if you look at the descriptions, back in the garden. We're back in the garden and what is life like? It is very good. We're in a new heavens and a new earth, untouched by sin, untouched by evil. To enjoy the presence of God and walk with him and glorify him as his kingdom representatives in this new heavens and this new earth for all eternity. That's the story. From the garden to the garden. From very good to very good. That's where this thing is headed. So if you can remember these nine words. Creation, revolt, promise. Law, king, hope. Jesus, church, shalom. You have the whole story of the Bible. That's the big idea of what God is doing in this book. It's a story that you have a place in. It's a story that's ultimately all about Jesus and how he gets you back to the garden. Okay, so I've covered a lot of material in the last three weeks. All these sermons are online. If you want to go back and review, the last two sermons are already up. This one will be up on Tuesday. You can go back through. You can get my notes and my PowerPoint. All that's available. I know lots of people have had questions, so I'm going to close this in prayer, and then you're welcome to come forward. I'll be up here. I think Trey Corey's going to join me up here, too. We'll answer whatever questions we can and whatever time we have. Thanks for sticking with me. This has been fun. I hope this is helpful to you guys. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this incredible story that you are telling us in the pages of Scripture. We thank you that this is not a made-up story, that it is the real story that brings meaning and purpose and hope to our lives. We thank you for this story. We pray that you would help us to share it with others so that those who are living without hope can find hope in Jesus. Those who are living in, in despair and in sin and guilt can find forgiveness in him. We praise you that this is not shalom yet, that we have so much to look forward to. We look forward to you coming back soon, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are our king. Thank you that you are worthy of our lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Come up if you've got any questions.